Thank you all very much. And I also want to ask all the pilgrims, all the ladies, to stand. So there were 46 of us on this pilgrimage. Over half were women, and they're here. So Penn and I are just two of that 46. I want you to look around and see who they are, because we're going to tell you the story in a very condensed version from our view and our point of view. But every one of these ladies could stand up here. Y'all go ahead and sit down and eat. Um, could tell their own version of this story, and it would be a great, unique, and different story. So I encourage you to seek them out and talk to them about their trip because it's going to be great, and hopefully we're just a platform to tee up those conversations so you can learn a little bit more um, about that. Um, I also want to encourage you, uh, if this stimulates interest, there are two resources that will be great for you to look at to learn a little bit more because two of our pilgrims, Andrew and Pringle Franklin, I see Pringle over there, um, wrote, had blogs, con conducted blogs while we were there. So many of you might have followed us on Andrew and um, Pringle's blog, but I encourage you to go back and read those entries as well. They might come alive a little more after you um, see some of the pictures that we'll share with you tonight. Um, I do want to recognize two ladies without whom this trip would not have happened, literally. And it is because they enabled their husbands to guide us. And that is Kristen yeah, and Ellen. I, I know y'all are here. Where are you, ladies? There they are, right there in the middle. Kristen and Ellen, we can't thank you enough. for You made this trip happen for all of us because your husbands wouldn't have been able to go if y'all weren't holding down the fort at home. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, well, I'm not, don't air your dirty laundry now. Yeah, we don't want to know all that. But um, it is great to be able to come back. I can't believe it's six, been six months and we all have not shared this with any of it, the rest of the parishioners. Um, so it is significant that we are sharing it with the ECW ladies. Um, we are all sisters here. And um, so I guess it's fitting that Penn and I, as sisters, are presenting this tonight. Um, as you all know, we are sisters-in-law. Penn and I are married to uh, brothers, Maybank and Ben. And neither Penn nor I had uh, blood sibling sisters when we were born, but we were very fortunate that we married into a family that gave us a second mom and three additional sisters. My other sister-in-law, Anne-Marie, is right there and uh, Margaret too. So we do have a, a sisterly bond. Um, but, but Penn and I are sisters-in-law, but we are more than that, we are sisters in Christ. And that is um, the most special bond of all. And that is the bond that all of us in this room share as sisters in Christ. I know we, are, we have our sisters at the ECW, we, we share a life together in our church family. Um, but we also have guests, uh, fellow Christian women who are here visiting us today, and we are glad that you are here. You are also sisters in Christ. And so if I have to say, sum up this trip, to introduce it to you all tonight, um, I would say it's one word, and that's relationship, the word relationship. That really describes, I think, everything about this trip. Um, those of us who went on it together formed a very special bond. And similar to our bond we share at ECW in this church as women who, who love Christ, we all shared that bond as pilgrims on a sacred journey um, together. 
And I say a sacred journey because that's what distinguishes a pilgrim from a tourist. We weren't riding on a bus looking at sights. We were on a sacred journey. And you're going to see that tonight, and I hope that we can share that with you and you get a sense of that. Um, you know, our relationship to each other was solidified as pilgrims on this trip. We came back um, very close friends. We did everything together every day. We ate, we journeyed, we walked, we slept, we even got sick together some. Sorry to say that. Um, so the, the, the good and the bad, but it was a very special, special time. But the most central relationship of this trip was each of our relationships to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I will say this was a transformational trip. Um, the, the sign of a pilgrimage is that when you come back, you're a changed person, um, spiritually changed. And I think that is true for every single one of us on this trip. And I think you'll get a sense of that um, tonight. But I will say that um, this transformation for me was very significant. And I'll just draw a little analogy to, to tee this up for Penn. It's kind of like you have a good friend and you know them very well, but if you've never seen them in their own home or experienced them in their own house, you only know them outside of that. Um, when you're invited to someone's home, either for dinner or for um, to spend the night or something like that, it adds an intimacy and a personal side to that relationship. Um, that's how we felt going to the Holy Land. If you walk into someone's home, you know what they love, you know how they live their day, you know what things smell like, what their favorite colors are. And I would just say that um, being able to go to the Holy Land was like going into Jesus's home, his homeland. And so with that, I hope that tonight we can um, give you a glimpse of what that was like for us and that you leave with some feeling that you've been in, in Jesus's homeland um, through us. I just want to say before I turn it over to Penn that, as Pat said, those songs were intentionally selected because they express um, different facets of what this trip was. As Pat said, we started every morning with the morning song, and the other two hymns um, uh, took on very deep significance um, as we experienced um, the Sea of Galilee in particular and the, all the aspects of Jesus's uh, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to my sister-in-law, Penn, who's gonna share with you our travels. She's a wonderful teacher, so you won't just have a travelogue tonight, you will actually learn a lot. So Penn, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Can everybody hear? that one away. Can everybody hear me all right? Okay. A little louder? Okay. I'll get the teacher voice going, as my children call it. Um, so I got to be able to see my notes and see the technology and all of that. But thank you all for coming tonight. Um, we are thrilled that you're here. It's actually been a great joy to kind of push us to go back through our pictures. I think... Um, Many of you shared photographs with me in trying to put this together. Um, some of you, some sent files of 700 pictures to me. Um, <laughs> others texted pictures, others emailed pictures. Um, everyone is so enthusiastic, and as Elizabeth said, 
please feel free to ask others. We are one small voice explaining what the trip meant just in part to us, um, but there are lots of other voices here in this church that would love to share their experience with you. So let's begin. Um, one of the things you'll very quickly notice is that it's desert. Um, and we're going to see a lot of that. But you very quickly understand the concept of an oasis, of a stream in the desert. And as you travel through this holy land, you vividly understand the concept of Jesus as the living water. And he is truly salvation. You can go many days without food, but you can't last long without water or living water. And Jeff swiped my St. Jerome quote already in his introduction. Um, but yes, the four Gospels and often the fifth is the Holy Land itself. So as we head out, we're going to go to a land that is literally the home of three different faiths, the three largest and greatest faiths in the world. It is the home of the cross. It is the home of the crescent, uh, the Islamic religion. And it is the home of Judaism. It is the ancient site of Judaism. And walking around Jerusalem, you see gentlemen wearing this outfit. It is the black coat still mourning the loss of the Temple of Solomon. Um, their hair is long and braided along the front because you don't till the edges of your field. You let the hair grow. You let the crops grow for others to come along and glean from the field, like Ruth was a gleaner in the book of Ruth. Um, so you, you begin to understand that there's a lot of symbolism, of historical background where we are. So here we are leaving Charleston. And arriving in JFK, we are ready for 30,000 feet up in the air, 12-hour flight, and all night long. And it was cold on that airplane, I can promise you. And as we landed in the Holy Land, our Good Shepherd greeted us all on the bus, welcomed us to the Holy Land. Now, I want to just say a word about Jeff Miller. We all think of him as our gentle, benign history teacher who will share a toast with you at the end of the day. He's the curious young archaeologist with his erstwhile, erstwhile companion who loves to go to ancient sites. But every now and again, Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> pops up. Also known as the Sheik of Arabic. And when that wake-up call from the hotel desk comes at O Dark Hundred in the morning, you realize that the man you're really traveling with <laughs> is cracking the whip all the time. Yes. <laughs> you can leave now, Jeff. Yes. Um, so just to give you a brief overview of where we went, um, we flew into Tel Aviv, and we landed there on the Mediterranean coast. And we first went up the Mediterranean coast north toward um, Caesarea Maritima, 
which you can see on the map on the right, and ultimately turned inward, and we're going to talk more about the geography, but inward along the Jezreel Valley to Nazareth, um, and then across to the Sea of Galilee, and then up. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, and then the Sea of Galilee there. Ultimately, we would travel around the coast of the Sea of Galilee. We would go up all the way north to Dan. Then we would come back down. We would follow the Jordan River all the way down and to Jericho, where we would then go up into the mountains of the Judean wilderness to Jerusalem. We'd go to Bethlehem. We would eventually come back down, cross the Jordan River about here, and come around by the Dead Sea in the land of Jordan to Mount Nebo where Moses died. We would come all the way down off the map there to Petra. Um, and then we would come back, cross the Jordan again, back to Jericho, back up to Jerusalem, and then across to Tel Aviv and home. So that's the outline of the trip. Um, just to give you an idea in Jordan, um, where Petra is. Petra is down here. So we came along the Dead Sea all the way down to Petra. And I want you to notice the neighborhood we're in. Um, it's a neighborhood you read about in the news a lot. Saudi Arabia, the Sinai Desert of Egypt, um, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. It's also a very, very ancient neighborhood. Um, the Jordan River Valley is part of the Great Rift Valley that actually starts in East Africa. And it's a fault line that was exposed millions of years ago when the pl tectonic plates of the Earth separated. And if you know anything about the fossil evolution of humans, you know that most archaeologists think the earliest humans originated in East Africa, went south to South Africa, but eventually came north and probably crossed right into the Holy Land and from there spread into Europe, Asia, um, and eventually down into other, other parts of the world. It is the area that is the most ancient of all the civilizations, the Fertile Crescent, these ancient river valleys along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, um, and then along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and down to Egypt. So you grew up probably hearing about the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, um, the Egyptians. And these are the earliest civilizations. And what I want you to understand is that literally, and I must be doing it wrong, thank you. You can see the Holy Land is just right smack in the middle of everything. To go from Egypt to Mesopotamia or Babylon, and they were huge trading partners, you had to go through the Holy Land. So from the dawn of time, people have been traveling back and forth through this area. In fact, the earliest roads in all of human history are located right through the middle of the Holy Land. Uh, you have the Via Maris, which is out there in purple, that runs along the coast from Egypt and then cuts inland across the top of the Jordan River and runs up to Damascus where it joins with the Red Road, which is the King's Highway. And both of them eventually go over to the Tigris and Euphrates River Valleys. 
And these are ancient roads. They've been traced all the way back to the Bronze Age. So we're talking about, say, 4,000 BC, 4,000 years before the birth of Christ. So these are roads and literally highways that people have been traveling since the dawn of human history. And all they've done today is just simply put pavement on top of them. So when we were in Jordan, for example, you're following the highway that says, you know, we're going straight on up to the Syrian border. All the highway signs say Damascus, next, Erbil, you know, all these places that you don't really want to go to right now. Um, but the highway goes there if you stay on it. It also means that ancient maps often show Jerusalem as the literal center of the world. And you can see that in this map, which is a medieval map, you have the continent of Europa, the continent of Asia, and the continent of Africa. And the circle right in the middle where they all connect is the city of Jerusalem. Everyone came through Jerusalem. The great armies of the world, the great kingdoms of the world, the great traders of the world, merchants and caravans. And so God, in working his plan out in history, knew exactly what he was doing. He took the land that everyone had to move through to make his presence known to all of us. You can start with the book of Ezekiel in chapter 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations. And he did that for a very specific reason. Because his chosen people, being in the very center of all the nations, would either influence all of those who pass through, or they would be influenced by those who pass through. And it's interesting to travel there and see all of that and to realize that time and time again, often, God's chosen people allowed themselves to be more influenced by those who came through than they did influence those who passed by. And it's interesting to think of that in connection with living in the city of Charleston in this day and age. We're the number one tourist destination in the world multiple years in a row. The world literally comes to our neighborhood. And what are we doing? Are we Jerusalem? Are we influencing the world, or are we being influenced by what the world brings to our doorstep? So let's start on the Mediterranean Sea. Mara was our style queen. She, as always, kept us on our toes and set a standard that the rest of us slovenly people getting dressed at 5.30 in the morning were trying to emulate over and over. She also won the best hat award of the whole trip. Um, we started literally right off the plane in the ancient city of Jaffa or Joppa, which is right on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's a wonderful ancient harbor, again, dates back to the Bronze Age, somewhere earliest inhabitants start around 4,000 BC, so 4,000 years before Christ, and it's a very lovely natural harbor that feeds into everything along the Mediterranean Sea. Some of the earliest Old Testament references to Joppa are from Jonah. Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh and to preach to the people of Nineveh. And he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't think they were going to be very nice and friendly. So instead, he went down to Joppa and he bought himself a ticket on a boat going somewhere else. 
And of course, he wound up in the belly of a rather large fish. I'm not sure why that's blank. Sorry about that. Um, Peter, oh, I do know. What happened to that slide? That's supposed to be Simon the Tanner's house. And I do not know where it went. It was there an hour ago. Um, and there's supposed to be another slide here. My apologies. I hope nothing else has disappeared. Um, Simon the Tanner's house was also in Joppa, and that was also where we went on the first day. And that's where Peter went, and he was there sleeping on the roof, and he had a vision where God sent down the sheet in a dream full of clean and unclean animals and told him to kill and eat. And it, this happened three times, and Peter finally realized that God was telling him that everything was available and he should share everything with everyone. In other words, he should share the word of God, the good news of the gospel of Christ with the Jews and the Gentiles alike. And with that, there came a knock on the door downstairs. It was some men from Cornelius, and they escorted him north from Joppa to Caesarea Maritima to meet with Cornelius and to talk about the gospel. So he brought the gospel to the Romans. Peter was one of the first to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So this brings us up to Caesarea Maritima, where we see things that are very familiar. Um, this is our first real day on the road, so we are all outfitted. We have on our name tags, we have our listening devices, and we have our hats and our sunscreen and our sunglasses. And if we knew that this was the last time we were going to be feeling the cool ocean breezes, um, we might have lingered a little longer. But um, this is Caesarea Maritima, which again is another natural harbor right on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. So it's accessible to everywhere along the Mediterranean Sea. And Herod the Great took the town that was there and really embellished it. He moved his palace there. He turned it into a capital city so that he could connect much more closely with Rome and add to his own power and authority. And so you will see a lot of the Roman influence in the buildings there. There's a large hippodrome where they held chariot races and gladiator fights and other things. You'll notice that it's all sand there. We also learn very quickly how bloody the Romans were. The sand was to absorb the blood. And then you could just dust it over and the blood was gone. Um, interestingly enough, the sand actually comes from the Nile River. As it flows north out of the Nile Delta, it's swept up by the Mediterranean currents. And as the crow flies, it's not very far to the next point of land, which happens to be the coast of Israel. Um, Herod also had built in front of his palace a large swimming pool that was fed by the ocean waves. This was not for exercise. This was so that he could drown any political opposition. And there were hundreds of people who met their deaths in Herod's swimming pool. This is the Roman amphitheater there. And this is where the Apostle Paul was brought before the Roman governor, Felix. And this would have been, you, you imagine, this huge amphitheater looking out across the Mediterranean Sea, facing toward Rome, and one impoverished, 
little, old, half-blind man and the great Roman Empire arrayed to condemn him. And Paul testified to Jesus. But you see the Roman influence everywhere. You see the Roman aqueducts for moving water. But we very quickly left the coast and the ocean breezes, and we headed inland. And we climbed up into the hills until we were atop Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel looks out over what's known as the Jezreel Valley. And this is a valley that connects the Mediterranean Sea in towards the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, that Rift Valley. So this is the large valley that connects the Mediterranean to the Rift Valley of the Jordan River. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, lush valley. And on top of Mount Carmel, Andrew gave us a marvelous teaching based on the Book of Kings where Elijah calls down God to defeat all of the prophets and the gods of Baal. And we heard the teaching, and then we walked over to the edge of the mountaintop, and we looked out, and as I said, it's the Jezreel Valley, but what we also learned is that, like any good ancient valley, and of course an ancient valley that was a major highway in the ancient world with people coming from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, traders all coming up and down through here, selling their goods, and also armies marching through here, that to protect it, you would have a hill town on either end of it. And so one end of it is protected by the hill town, Har for hill, Megiddo, which literally made, some people call the valley, the valley of Har Megiddo or rather the valley of Armageddon. So this is the valley of Armageddon that is referred to in the book of Revelation. And if you know anything about modern times, you know that ISIS, one of the things they talk about is that in Syria, there's a great plain, a great valley, and there's going to be a climactic battle between the battle of, between Allah's warriors and the people of the cross. And they believe that will be the, the climactic end of the world, and they are seeking that. But you realize also, standing on top of Mount Carmel, that you really are standing in the center of the ancient world. And all roads point in different directions, but you can get anywhere from there, and nowhere is terribly far from there. So from the top of Mount Carmel, we descended into the Jezreel Valley, or the Valley of Armageddon, and you also realize that this is Israel's breadbasket. You don't grow things up on the rocky heights, you grow things down in the valley. And one of the things to focus on, and if you think about Jesus' ministry, is most of Jesus' ministry was spent in the valleys, and we're going to talk a little more about that as we go along. But as you drive along the road, you reflect on the thousands of years of human history. This is a tomb just sitting on the side of the road. I mean, the bus driver simply slowed down as we went past it. You see these over and over and over again. So the idea of a stone being rolled away from in front of a tomb, you know, we read that on Easter and we think, oh, how unusual. It's not unusual at all. It's everywhere. The other hill town that guarded the other end of the Jezreel Valley is known as Bet Shan, 
and Bet literally means house, and Xi'an is house of rest. And this was, again, dates back to the Bronze Age, earliest times, but then you see Greek influence, you see Roman influence. It's the ruins of a magnificent town. Um, Jeff, as usual, gave us a wonderful teaching there. I will tell you that it was 108 degrees. So as you can see, we are continually hugging the shade. Um, Lon was our other inspiration. Mara and Lon were impeccably attired. Um, Ron never, Lon never seemed to wrinkle, which was amazing. Um, and he never looked hot. Um, but one of the things about Bet-Shan is that it shows up in the Old Testament, and it is near the place where the first king of the Israelites, King Saul, was killed in the battle with the Philistines. And it actually says in 1 Samuel that when the Philistines killed Saul, they took the king and they hung the body on the walls of Bet-Shan. And they hung the body on the walls of Bet-Shan for a very simple reason, because everyone passing up and down that valley would see their power and their ability to defeat this king. And Bet-Shan has a long history, as you can see. Five years after that, it was conquered by the Egyptians, and we know about that because they actually wrote about it in hieroglyphics on the, in the Temple of Karnak in Luxor, Egypt. So we know all of these things are factual. We have other civilizations that have recorded these events. It was rebuilt by David. It was destroyed again by the Assyrians when they came through and conquered. It was rebuilt again. Then it was conquered by Alexander the Great, the Greeks, then the Romans. And then ultimately in about 630 AD, the Muslims, and then it was destroyed in 749 AD. But when you climb to the top of the tell, to the top of the hill, and you look around the ruins of the old fortress, and there were a hearty few of us who did in 108 degree heat, um, you realize what a magnificent view of the valley it commands. And these rock walls, the basalt black rocks, are left from the time of King Saul. This was the fortress that would have been defended at that point. But you also see the earthquake damage, these massive, massive columns that are toppled and no one has righted them since 749 AD. And Pringle and I were wandering around together and we were trying to remember the words to our high school poetry class, Ozymandias. So Pringle, there you go. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, and this is what you see, that again, the reminder, everything earthly passes away. And as the poem concludes, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And that's all Bet-Shan is today. It's a ruin. But it was once one of the greatest cities in the whole world. So as we proceed down the Jezreel Valley, our next stop was Nazareth. And one of the things you realize is that if you are God incarnate and you are man coming to earth as a child, but you have a king, Herod the Great, who wants to kill you, 
with massive armies at his disposal out looking for you, where within this holy land are you going to hide a child so that he can grow up? Well, you hide them in an invisible city. All these mountains on either side of the Jezreel Valley, there's a group of hills, more than a dozen hills, that form a bowl, a, a caldera, essentially. And at the bottom of that bowl is the ancient town of Nazareth. In modern day, Nazareth has grown, and you can see a few buildings on the hilltop there. But in ancient times, as armies came down the Jezreel Valley, they could not see that there was a town there. They had no idea Nazareth existed. And as you come into Nazareth, you come up over these hilltops, and then you literally circle down, down, until you hit the ancient city in the very, very bottom of the bowl. And you drive through, literally drive through thousands of years of history going down. And in Nazareth, we see where God chose to become man. And our first stop was the Greek Orthodox Church of St. Gabriel that is built over Mary's spring. If you remember the Annunciation, Mary went to the spring to draw water from the well to take back to her house. She's a young girl. That was her job each day. Everybody went to the well. That's where all the gossip was. And so Mary goes there. She draws water from the well. And she is visited by the angel Gabriel, who announces to her that she will bear a child. And the spring is still flowing. And you can actually see Chloe, who so sweetly lent me the pointer. Um, Chloe and Bob are drawing water from the spring right there. And the well is a little further on. And we are in line to each go and see the well. These are the steps that have since been blocked off because pilgrims were picking up pieces of the steps and carrying them away. Um, so the, the Greek priests have blockaded it off. But these are the steps that Mary would have walked down to get to the well to draw her water. Um, and this is the church inside. And then we began walking up the streets of ancient Nazareth. And when you walk up the streets of ancient Nazareth, if you pass a carpenter shop, everybody has to stop and take a picture. Because, of course, Jesus was a carpenter, right? How quaint. What do you notice about the carpenter's shop? It's made of stone. The ancient word for what Jesus was was a tectone, which is literally a builder. But the medieval translations of the Bible were mostly done in northern Europe where everything was built out of wood. And so they translated builder or tectone into carpenter someone who works with wood. But if you're there, as Elizabeth said, visiting a friend in their homeland, what you realize is that there are no wooden buildings. There are not enough trees. You're in the desert. They built out of mud brick and out of stone. So Jesus was probably more of a builder of things that are made out of stone. And if you think about how often stones and rocks show up in his teachings, he tells Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. He speaks of the cornerstone as the foundation. He talks about having a millstone around his neck. Walking through the streets, you see all the different cellars. We go in the ancient synagogue. 
and the modern basilica. So we kind of go from old to new. This is the basilica that is built, the modern basilica, 20th century, built over Mary's house. And it's also built over the ruins of the Crusader church that was built over top of Mary's house. So you have the Crusaders who in about 1200 built a church there. These are the Crusader walls. And then you have, even below that, you have Mary's house. And this is where the Virgin Mary, after the angel Gabriel visited her at the spring, I would imagine that if I were drawing water as a teenage girl and an angel suddenly showed up, I would probably run home to mother as fast as I could. And you can imagine her running into this common room there in the middle of the house and saying, Mom, you know, what happened? And the angel showed up again at home. Nazareth is also famous for its olive trees, and one of the things we learn there is that often the crosses to crucify people were made from olive wood. It was the native wood. It's what they had the most of. Uh, the historian Josephus tells us at one point in the first century that there were so many hundreds of crucifixions a day that they almost ran out of trees, that there were virtually no trees left in the area. The other thing that was interesting to learn was that we often think of crosses as being so high up there, but a cross, because olive trees are short, the wood from a cross, the wood from the tr olive tree to make a cross was short. And so people hung basically right at eye level. And so you could walk by and look in the eyes of someone being crucified. You could spit on them in their face if you wanted to. Um, it was not difficult to stab someone in the side or to break their legs. We also saw sheep many, many times. Um, and we realized, and I'll show you more pictures later on, but the caves. And the caves where, like every human who wants to get out of 108 degree heat, you're looking for the shade. The sheep are looking for the shade. And at night, the good shepherd would lie down across the opening to the caves where the sheep would seek shelter. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the good shepherd. You cannot go into the cave, you cannot come out of the cave without crossing the good shepherd. He is the gatekeeper. And for some reason, I'm losing slides here. Um, we also saw an ancient olive press. And they collected olives and they pressed the olives first using this huge grinding stone. You can see several people in the background that was often turned by um, an animal like a burrow or something like that or even a group of men pushing a stick around. And you would grind the olives into a paste and then you would take the olives over to these stones and you would put the paste in this area, you'd have a pot down in there, and you would press the olive paste to squeeze out the oil. And so nowadays in cooking, everybody wants the first cold press of the olive oil, and the third press was usually used to, for the oil to light lamps. And so the third press was not good for cooking anymore. Um, when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will refer to being pressed out in the garden of all the olive trees. And we went into a renovated synagogue there, and we saw in Nazareth, we saw the roof 
and the roof, as you can see, had a few wooden timbers, lots of rushes, and on top of that was packed mud as much as 18 inches thick. And you look at that and you think a foot and a half thick of hardened mud, of rushes, bulrushes, and then timbers. And you imagine in the book of Mark when Jesus is, not, not Jesus, sorry, when the man who was sick and his four friends literally tear through the roof to lower their friend down in front of Jesus in order to be healed by Jesus. And what an undertaking that was, the desperation involved. And this is the interior of the restored synagogue. And you can see that it had natural air conditioning. It was very shady. Up above, you had high windows, which let the light in, but also let the hot air out. And so it was very cool in there, naturally cool. And normally, a teacher, a rabbi, would have walked up, sat down at the table, unrolled the scrolls, and read from them, and then discussed the meaning of them. And as we left this area of Nazareth, we were each given a small ancient lamp, lantern, to be reminded that not only are we to go out into the world and be the light, but that it is Jesus' word, thy word, that is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And everywhere we went, we had manna from heaven, wonderful bread and refreshing food everywhere. So we left Nazareth. We stopped briefly in Cana, where Jesus performed his first sign, his first miracle. And if you think about Jesus as the living water, he's attending a wedding ceremony. And a wedding would go on for about a week. And all of the village would be invited. And usually what happened was that the rabbis, there's an old rabbinical saying that says, where there is wine, there is joy. And so Jesus is attending this wedding feast with his mother, and they run out of wine. And so what that means is that doesn't bode well for the marriage. There's no joy that will be had in this marriage. And so Jesus as himself, the living water, takes water and turns it into the joy of God, the wine that is the joy. And that is his first sign, pointing the way to more. Shortly thereafter, we arrive on the heights of the hills above the Sea of Galilee and above the ancient city and now modern city of Tiberias. And we proceed down to our hotel right on the banks. And one of the things, again, that you realize is our hotel had the flags of all nations flying out there, just like Charleston. Everyone comes to the Sea of Galilee. It is the river valley. It is the highway. It is the ancient world. And in fact, if you're a bird watcher, you want to go to Israel in the spring and the fall because all the great bird migrations from Europe and Asia fly right through this valley going down to Africa to winter. So it is still a migratory route for birds, for humans. And one of the things, I kept looking over at the far shore, and finally I said to Jeff, what are those hills that we're looking at? Is that Jordan? He said, those are the Golan Heights. And being a history teacher, particularly of the Middle East, um, I had no idea it was that close. And you suddenly realize 
the importance of controlling the heights around the Sea of Galilee, for example. The Sea of Galilee is fed by the Jordan River. In a desert community, he who controls the heights controls all the roads and controls access to the river. And if you control access to the river, you control access to the water supply, literally the lifeblood of a nation. And so when all of the Arab nations ganged up and attacked Israel in 1967, and Israel succeeded in defeating them, Israel won the Golan Heights. They also won the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, as well as the Sinai Peninsula. Through, through a treaty with Egypt, they gave back the Sinai Peninsula. They recently, about 10 years ago, gave back the Gaza Strip. Um, but they still control most of the West Bank, and they still control the, the Golan Heights. And I cannot see Israel giving back the Golan Heights anytime soon. Um, if you imagine sitting there on a tourist boat on the Sea of Galilee, and if you could imagine having rockets sitting on the heights of those hills, that would be a very uncomfortable feeling. So Israel, for her own security today, not just because of the water supply, but also just strategically, wants to retain control of the Golan Heights. We were blessed every morning with incredible sunrises. Um, as you've heard, I was rooming with my mother-in-law, Daryl, who would pop out of bed every morning at 5 o'clock and throw open the curtains and say, get up, Penn, get up. The sun is coming up. <laughs> I usually stay up till about midnight reading, so I'd be like, oh. <laughs> um, but it was a blessing every morning, and the sunrises were truly magnificent over the Sea of Galilee. We took a boat up to the northern part of the lake, and it really is just a big lake. They call it the Sea of Galilee. It's also known as Lake Tiberias. Um, we were able to see the shore. We went to the Mount of the Beatitudes, and we learned about what it means to be a member of a different kingdom, a citizen of a different kingdom, not the kingdom on earth. And we also went to the Bay of Parables, which is also known as the Bay of Sower. It's a natural amphitheater that you can see, and they've done acoustical research where someone in a boat can be heard by as many as 7,000 people sitting in this natural amphitheater on the shore. And it's where Jesus taught the parable of the sower, which deals with the rocky ground, the thistles, the weeds, and you look around you and you see it all. You see the fertile soil, you see the weeds, you see the, the thistles, and you think his listeners were sitting right there looking down at the ground and seeing everything he was talking about as he brought his message to life. We also went to Tagba, which is right there. All of this is located right around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus called some of the disciples. There are seven springs there of fresh water. And so often the disciples would wash their nets after fishing. And so Jesus, that was a good place for congregations, congregating. So he met them there. Um, it was also a good place for fishing because often the Jordan River and these springs washed all the pollen and nutrients down from the north. And the fish congregated to feed there. And so the fish were fatter for fishermen to catch. Um, this is where Jesus fed the 5,000, and there's now a church that is built over the very rock. You can see the rock um, there. 
where Jesus supposedly spread out the food and blessed it and then broke it and fed 5,000 people. And we were able to have Holy Communion just outside on the edge of the Sea of Galilee that Andrew led us in with some fishing boats floating around behind us, which was pretty magical. From there, we went to the spot just a little further along the Sea of Galilee where Peter's primacy took place. This is where Jesus, after the resurrection, met with Peter and asked Peter multiple times. How many times? Three times. Do you love me? And Peter each time said, yes, Lord, you know I do. He asked him three times because Peter had denied him three times. And so he was able to undo Peter's denials. And then he said to Peter, feed my sheep. And he gave him his commission. And Peter is the rock on which Jesus will build his church. And so you have this church literally built on the rock. And you can see the ancient steps rising up. And one of the most exciting things is you look at these places and you see that the whole world is still coming to these places. There were people there from China, there were people from India, there were people from Africa, from Europe, from the United States. We were very much in the minority. It was an incredible place of gathering. We continued up the Jordan River Valley going north now up to the very top of the country of Israel and to the headwaters of the Jordan River up near Dan. This is where we filled our bottles. So if any of you are having babies baptized soon, um, there are lots of water bottles, plastic water bottles that came back filled with fresh water from the Jordan River um, to baptize babies, hopefully for many years to come here at St. Philip's. Um, this is Jimmy Haygood leaning over, and this is Tammy leaning over taking a picture of Jimmy Haygood. <laughs> um, I do have to thank Tammy. Tammy so gracefully shared all of her beautiful pictures, and she has them so well organized, <laughs> and they were incredibly helpful. Um, the water is freezing cold. It is literally snow right off of Mount Hermon that is melted. Um, we did not stand in there long. Jeff said, let me take your picture, and oh my gosh, it was so cold, we were all screaming. Um, but this is where Caesarea Philippi was built. And it's also known as Banyas, which is the Arab name. Ban is the Arab name for the god Pan. This was a, it was first a Greek city, then it was a Roman city. And it was dedicated to the god Pan. And if you remember anything about your mythology, you remember that Pan was a mischievous little fellow who loved ladies and he had a really ribald sense of humor. Um, in other words, this is the Las Vegas of the ancient world. <laughs> what happened in Caesarea Philippi should have stayed in Caesarea Philippi. Um, Jesus took his disciples there not to go have a big night in the ancient Las Vegas, but to say to them in the midst of all of these temples, to all of these ancient gods, who do you say that I am? And they answered him first, well, some say you're this, some say you're John the Baptist. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you are the Christ. And that's when Jesus said to him, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. 
And what he was in essence saying was the same thing that the Bible says to us today. Is Jesus just one of many different gods out there in society that we might choose to worship in our culture today? Or is he the only God, the only way, the truth, and the life? And so he said to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, that large fissure, that crack in the rock that you're looking at there, was known in Banyas, in Caesarea Philippi, as the gates of hell. It is a deep cave going back into the mountainside, and from it, water from the mountain would come gushing forth. And it was terrifying to the ancient world. They thought it was the gods spewing water from the center of the earth. They were angry. And so this was literally Jesus brought his disciples to the gates of hell. And interestingly enough, the top of the hill, there's a barbed wire fence, and that's Lebanon. Um, so that's how far north we were. This is the gate of Abraham. And I need to start talking faster. Um, this is, again, Dan, this is some of the earliest settlements in the ancient world. Um, this Abraham came through here probably around 2800 BC. And you can see that there have been people coming through here ever since. Um, this would have been the ancient walled city and the gate that you saw a second ago. Um, these are some of the ancient walls. It is a very strategic location at the headwaters on a hill that looks all the way down the Jordan River Valley. You can see all the way down to the Sea of Galilee from there. So it literally commanded the valley. The Crusaders came along. They built a fortress on top of the hill up there. And today, you can see the remains of dugouts from the 1967 war between Israel and the Arab nations and the 1973 Yom Kippur War. So they have been fighting over that territory for five thousand years. Um, we did have a little rest time on the Sea of Galilee to all have fun. We had a wonderful sing-along led by Pat in the hotel lobby after dinner one night. We enjoyed a full moon over the Sea of Galilee and we had a little after dinner fun and fellowship and we even had a good laugh over the sign at the restrooms. <laughs> We then went on to Capernaum, <clears throat> where Andrew taught a great lesson about the authority of Scripture. And one of the things he focused on was what an author really is. And an author is the writer of the story. And the author knows the whole story from beginning to end. The author knows how it will end. And so as we walked around the ancient city of Capernaum, which was the metropolis of the ancient day, they salted the fish that the fishermen caught in the Sea of Galilee, and they shipped the fish to Rome. They had spices from all over Arabia that came through here. It was a huge, booming commercial city, and yet today, it's nothing but ruins. And so as we look around, and again, we realize how earthly things pass away, but we remember who the author of history is, and he knows how it will end. And so from there, we start down the Jordan River, down to Jericho. 
And one of the interesting things to consider as we pass by this landscape that you'll see in a second, as we go towards Jerusalem, is that a quote like this, all of the armies of the ancient world that have sought to take the city of Jerusalem have traveled this way. And Jesus also traveled this same road. So you've had the Philistines, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, the, the Knights of the Cross, the Crusaders. They've all come through here, and many of them have died here. And as we start going along through the Judean wilderness, as we turn at Jericho and start climbing up through the mountains to Jerusalem, you realize what a barren, desolate place this is. It is populated today really only by Bedouin tribes. And you look at it and you think, how do they even live here? But they are shepherds, as they have always been. The Bedouins originally came out of Africa. And they have been here for thousands of years. And they are still living the same way. And you see the caves where they would hide during the day to get out of the heat. And Interestingly enough, if you can sort of see along here, you see the, the rock formations, but you also see these little trails that kind of go along. These are the sheep trails, and they are known as the paths of righteousness, which we'll come back to later. But you climb up through this wilderness. This was Jesus, where Jesus was tempted by the devil, and eventually, you come up to Jerusalem. And so, just to show you briefly, you've got the Dead Sea down here, which is at the bottom of the Jordan River, the Judean wilderness that we've just come through, all these mountains, desert mountains. And we came up, just as Jesus would have done, up through that desert to the Mount of Olives. And we came down the side of the Mount of Olives, as Jesus would have done, on Palm Sunday into the Kidron Valley, the Valley of the Dry Bones, and then up, Jesus would have come up into this gate right here, which is the Gate of Beautiful. But you'll see that now the Gate of Beautiful goes to what was the Temple Mount, and it's now controlled by the Muslims, and it's the Dome of the Rock there, and a Muslim mosque atop it. The Temple of Solomon is long gone, this is the Muslim quarter, and the Muslims bricked up the Gate of Beautiful because they didn't want the Christian Messiah to come back through there. The prophets say the Christian Messiah will enter Jerusalem through the Gate of Beautiful. So they bricked it up, and they put a cemetery out in front because no rabbi can walk through a cemetery. What they didn't realize was that Jesus had already come through that gate. Um, we circled around the city and... The Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, what's left for the Jews of the Temple Mount is right down here. And the Jewish quarter is here. We circled around, and we stayed in a hotel sort of off the map over here. But we walked into the Old City through the Jaffa Gate, which takes you into the Christian quarter, um, which is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, which is, well, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, but you can see, Jewish... Jerusalem is a divided city even today, and this is why when Jeff says if you can pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you are praying for the peace of the world because it is where all the great religions, all the nations of the world come together. 
This is a little better view of the walled city itself. Um, this is the Kidron Valley here. And you can see the walled city. You can see where the walls were expanded later on. Um, so we started our trek down from the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem. And as we said, as Jesus comes down, one of the things is the crowd is shouting hosannas. And Jesus says, if they were to be made silent, because some of the authorities are saying, make the people be quiet. He said, if they're quiet, even the very stones would speak, would rise up and speak. Well, the stones that are all around are the ancient cemeteries. The Jews had been burying the dead outside the city walls of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley on the side of the Mount of Olives for thousands of years. And so literally what Jesus meant was these bones, these very bones would come to life, these dry bones, and they would shout out. One of the things that you, if you know anything about the Islamic culture, you know, <coughs> is that they prefer to control the heights. And in the Islamic culture, they always, if there's a church or a synagogue, they will always build a mosque right next to it that is taller so that they overshadow whatever else is there. And so I love this picture because halfway down from the Mount of Olives, you come to the Dominus Flevit, where Jesus literally looked out over the city of Jerusalem and wept for the city. He foretold that the city would be destroyed within the lifetime of many of the people standing there with him, and it was. But in this picture, you can see the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Dome of the Rock, but the cross is taller. <laughs> and this is the Gate of Beautiful, as you can see, that has been bricked up. And we followed the path down until we came to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane is literally the Garden of Olive Trees. And it was here that Jesus spent his final evening before he was arrested with a handful of his disciples. And he went off and prayed on a rock by himself. And some say that he actually sweated blood. He was in such agony. And he is described as being pressed out, literally like an olive press. The life was going to be squeezed out of him. And there is now a church, as you can see, and the rock where Jesus prayed, which has dark stains on it, potentially the blood stains of Christ on it. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is led up a set of marble stairs toward the city of Jerusalem to the palace of Caiaphas. And we were able to walk on a section of those stairs so we could literally walk where Jesus had trod. And then Jesus was imprisoned that night in the pit under Caiaphas's house. And this is the pit. He would have been lowered through that opening down into this dungeon-like small room. And it is a claustrophobic space. We were there. Jeff did a reading. Um, all I could imagine the whole time I was there was sitting there in darkness. We at least had light. And I was envisioning rats. Um, 
As you can imagine, it was a pretty sobering experience. We came out of there to the courtyard area where Peter would have denied knowing Christ three times before the cock crowed, and as we all came out into the sunlight, a rooster crowed down the hill, and the sound carried up. Um, it, it reduced a lot of people to tears. The next day, we went out to Bethlehem. Andrew gave a wonderful teaching on the edge of shepherd's fields. We saw an acacia tree and the thorns. You can see the size of the thorns. This is probably what was used to make the crown of thorns that would have been put on Jesus' head. And we did the Via Dolorosa, the walkway up to Golgotha that Jesus would have carried the cross the next day on the way to his own crucifixion. And this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It is built over the site of the crucifixion. It is built over the site of the anointing slab where Jesus' body was taken down and anointed. And it is also built over the site of the tomb. So it is a massive church. And one of the things I want you to notice, this is the main entrance to the church. This, these are the steps up to another entrance which leads you into Calvary, the hill. Over here, anybody know what that is? who didn't go on the trip? <laughs> That's a bomb disposal box. Inside the church, these are the stairs that lead up to the top of cavalry. And when you get up to the top, pilgrims literally crawl on their hands and knees to the base of the cross. And you can stick your hand in the crack in the rock where the cross stood. And you can feel the base of the rock that held the cross. And right next to it is the stone that split. And if you go down, you take stairs, you climb stairs up, and then you climb stairs down. And underneath, there is a glass wall and you can see the whole stone all the way down through the wall. And they actually have a meter on it that measures the movement of the stone. Um, and it, it cracked the day of the crucifixion and has stayed that way. This is the anointing stone where Jesus' body would have been brought down off of cavalry and anointed for burial. You can see the mosaic there. And then this is the tomb. It's actually a building built over the tomb. Um, and again, you crawl in. And literally, this is what we as Christians are meant to do. We are meant to walk with each other to the foot of the cross, coming on our knees together, if that is what need be. Behind the tomb are other ancient tombs. And so that's part of why archaeologists are so certain that this is the right spot, is there is a whole cluster of ancient tombs that are literally in a room right behind the tomb of Christ. But to show you just how divided Jerusalem is, it is an Eastern Orthodox church. There is a Latin Roman Catholic chapel in the church. And there is a Muslim man who keeps the key and locks the door every night. And so here he is climbing up a wooden ladder and locking the door of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre every night. 
And as you walk out into the courtyard, you look up and you see the mosque built right beside it with the minarets lit in the evening with green, the color of the Prophet Muhammad. Allahu Akbar literally means our God is the greatest. And you can see the dome is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and there is a mosque flanking it on either side, taller than it is, to say that we are superior. And you can see every church in Jerusalem. Here's another church here, and here's a minaret over top of it. And the Wailing Wall, which is the Jewish holy site, they believe that God still resides within the Temple Mount, and so they pray at the, the western wall of the Temple Mount or the Wailing Wall. And again, there is a minaret that looms over this sacred spot for the Jews. Not sure why. So, as we leave Jerusalem, if the Holy Land is known as the fifth gospel, the Jordan River is the spine of the book. And if you're going to really read the full book, you have to look at the pages on both sides, and you have to cross the river and see what lies east of Eden. So we travel through more desert. This is Moab. This is where Ruth, the Moabite, came from. These are the hills that Moses wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And everywhere you see evidence of life still as it was. We go to the site of the baptism, John the Baptist. These things were done in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. We come through the wilderness, and it is literally, interestingly enough, in the middle of the desert, there is this wilderness, and you wander these paths through this tangled vegetation, and suddenly you come out at the Jordan River. And it's a very rustic spot, but it is also an ancient spot where shepherds would bring their sheep, and they would clean and wash their sheep before they took them up to Jerusalem to be sold as sacrifices. And if you remember, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus was coming to the river to be baptized. And while we were there, we were blessed that a white bird flew across the river and landed right by the baptismal font that we were standing around. Um, and, of course, I saw the Spirit descending as a dove. And yet again, we had an oasis in the wilderness and manna from heaven. <laughs> and then we ended up at the Dead Sea. And I promise you, you cannot do anything more than that in the Dead Sea. It is truly what they say, the minerals and the salt are so thick that you cannot get your feet down. You cannot stand up in the Dead Sea. You get about knee deep and it flips your feet up and all you can do is float. Um, you don't want to float long, though, because it will dehydrate you in short order. So we spent the night. You could almost say we camped, but it was one of the nicest hotels we'd seen. Um, we spent the night on the banks of the Dead Sea, but yet on the far hills, as the sun set, you could see the spires of Jerusalem. And then it was off to Petra. Through the Judean wilderness, and into the canyon of the lost civilization of the Nabataeans. And we went deeper and deeper, 
and you realize why no one found this place for over a thousand years. <laughs> Until Indiana Miller showed up. <laughs> but Dee Dee was there too. And the whole group made it down, almost the whole group made it down there. We had a few, few people who needed to go to the hotel that day. Um, but Petra is a magnificent place, but one of the things you learn about the Nabataeans is that for 5,000 years, they have been incredible merchants, and they have literally been trading spices and goods and precious things from all over the world through this river valley. When the Romans actually conquered that area, they built a new road so that they would put the Nabataeans out of business because the Nabataeans were so successful commercially. And so the Nabataeans said, fine, and they just disappeared into this canyon, and nobody knew about them for a 1,000 years until the 1800s. Um, but everywhere you went, they were trying to sell you something. That is the most incredible piece of amber I had ever seen in my life. Um, there are silks, there are spices, and they literally, this is, you climb way up to this temple here, and right beside it, uh, you have a shop. And the shopkeepers are actually, you couldn't buy anything right now because they're facing towards Mecca and they are praying. Um, this is looking down. You can see over here, one shopkeeper had his bed set up on the edge of the cliff, literally. Um, I'm standing here taking this picture of Andrew down there. Um, and so that was right beside the pillow. Um, your mother would not let you sleep there. But they still sell frankincense and myrrh there. And all of the dealers have fresh herbs, and they are eager to sell to you. They also have remnants of the British invasion and the British Empire there, too. Um, you can get in and out of Petra the old way if you want. It's not terribly recommended because there are no shock absorbers. There are no shock absorbers on that one, either but you can pull an Indiana Jones if you want. Our final night in the Holy Land was spent in a hotel hanging off the side of this hill above Petra, and as, we, as dusk came on, down in this valley way below us were several Bedouin camps, and as dark fell, the campfires were lit, and all you could see were these dotted campfires around the valley, and next to us, they were setting up dinner in a Bedouin tent. And darkness fell. But in the morning, we looked across, and on top of this hill, if you can kind of see right about there, on the highest point, there's a tiny little white dot. That's the shrine of Aaron, Moses' brother, and that is where Aaron is buried, on the top of that wilderness. And so we said goodbye to Petra, we drove out, passed more sheep, a reminder that this is a tense place to live. We had a little sandstorm on our way back to Jerusalem just to remind us it's also a very inhospitable place to live. And as I mentioned, most of Jesus' teachings were focused around the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River Valley. And if you think about it, our culture today tells us that we ought to live life from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. That if you are successful, if you do well, 
then you can afford to just skip from mountaintop to mountaintop. But the problem is you miss a lot of life. The planting, the growth, the harvest is all done down in the valleys. And that's where Jesus taught, and it's actually where God meets us most, is in the valleys of our lives. And I think a number of you know that, particularly if you were on the trip with me, I thought I was coming back to hop a plane 48 hours later to meet my husband on a sailboat in the Caribbean where we were going to spend six weeks sailing with another couple. Unfortunately, I came back to learn my husband had been diagnosed with acute leukemia. So our final stop on the way back to Jerusalem was probably the most meaningful one to me. We pulled off the road and drove a short distance off the main highway to a valley called the Wadi Kelt. And the Wadi Kelt is literally known as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And it is from the 23rd Psalm. It is an actual place. I had always assumed it was metaphorical, but it is a true place. And it is this valley, as you can see right here, where it is so deep that the sun only hits the bottom at high noon during the day. The rest of the time, it is in shadow. This is the place where travelers, this is the road, the ancient road, and you can still see it running along here. The ancient road from Jericho by the Jordan River up to Jerusalem runs. Every traveler who passed from Jericho to Jerusalem had to come through this road and had to pass through this valley. This is where Jesus places the story of the Good Samaritan. This is where Elijah fled through here when he was fleeing Jezebel. There are stories after stories. Today there is a monastery, St. George's Monastery, that prides themselves on the hospitality of the Good Samaritans. But in this dark, dark place, God says he is always with us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And if you stand on the hillside overlooking that valley, and if you turn to your right, what you're looking down toward is the palm trees of Jericho and the plains of the Jordan River Valley. And Jericho, the city of Jericho, is right there. And if you turn to the left, on the heights of the hill over here, you see the spires of the city of Jerusalem. So even while you are in the darkest valley in the ancient world, the darkest valley of your personal life, you are surrounded by the promises of God everywhere. We are never alone. And so our final group gathering spot was once more, we came to the foot of the cross as pilgrims looking down into the valley of the shadow of death and yet surrounded by God's promises. And we ended up in Jerusalem at the Catholic Notre Dame of Jerusalem for a final dinner and festivities. And then we loaded on the bus to drive to the airport in Tel Aviv at about 10 o'clock at night. And some consider the road to Emmaus to be this road. It's a big question as to what is the road to Emmaus? Which road is it leading out of Jerusalem? But some say it's the road that goes to Tel Aviv. 
And if you know that on the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection, Jesus met two of the disciples there, and he walked with them on their journey, and he talked with them, and he shared all the things in the scripture that pertain to himself. And eventually, when they stopped, he disappeared. And they turned to each other, and having recognized him after he left them. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened to us the scripture? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They told what had happened on the road. And so for all of us, we are all those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we are pilgrims. We have been there. We have crawled on our hands and knees into the tomb. We have touched the stone. We know the tomb is empty. And we are now to go back to our own Jerusalems, each and every one of us, and we are to carry the news, the good news, of all that we have seen and heard. And we are to share it for the glory of God. So we are called to be the light of the world shining out of the city of Charleston. And to finish up, I started by making fun of our incredible leaders. But I want to finish by thanking them, our good shepherds, who led us so faithfully. You brought us to this old, old land. You made thousands of years of history come alive. You showed us the three great religions of the world and the incredible overlay of cultures. But most of all, you allowed us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We are forever changed. We are bonded together as earthly pilgrims. We long now for greater closeness with each other to truly knit our lives together in Christ. We have been richly blessed. We are incredibly grateful. It has been the trip of a lifetime, and we thank you.